0: Hi, I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. Join me in Auckland on the 18th and 19th of November for the AMA 2022 conference. The theme for this year is optimising 21st century healthcare for the mind, body and spirit. I'll be giving a presentation discussing the drivers of stress, anxiety and burnout, and how to support patients with these symptoms. Visit ama.net.au for more information and to register.
1: Welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to elders past and present. With us today, I'm very excited to say, is Dr Felice Gersh, an obstetrician and gynaecologist who is also board certified in integrative medicine. Felice has written several books on topics including menopause and PCOS. With over 30 years in clinical practice, Felice specializes in all aspects of female health with a focus on managing female hormonal dysfunctions. She has a particular interest in metabolism and weight, which is what we're going to be discussing today. Welcome to FX Medicine, Felice. Thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm
1: so glad I could join you. (laughs) Me too, let me tell you. Now, in 2018, the average waist measurement for an Australian adult man was 98 centimetres, and for women it was 88 centimetres. And unbelievably, three out of five Australian men and two-thirds of Australian women had a measured waist circumference that put them at an increased risk of disease. And insulin resistance, it affects one in two people over the age of 40. The impact of metabolic health is profound. And as clinicians, we need to be proficient in this topic. Felice, can you start off by sharing with us how you became so interested in the topic of metabolism?
0: Well, it turns out that I spent much of my career as a practicing obstetrician and I'm also a gynecologist. So I delivered thousands of babies. I took care of so many women who were pregnant Mm. and it became very apparent to me that you cannot have a healthy woman, a healthy pregnancy, fertility, if you don't have healthy metabolism. Mm. So the link between reproductive health and metabolic health, became very clear. Mm. But now it's finally being recognized that pregnancy is essentially like a metabolic stress test for women, (laughs) that women who fail pregnancy by having preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, hypertension, and so forth, preterm deliveries, that they have underlying metabolic issues. Mm. And so the link between metabolism And all of the metabolic related factors that go into a healthy or an unhealthy individual have such a big connection to reproductive health. So Mm. the link between all of this and then how it all like manifests and how hormones are underlying all of these issues. So, you know, you can't be, in my opinion, Mm. you can't be a functionally efficient OBGYN if you don't understand the critical importance of metabolic health. Mm. And then, of course, what happens is women age and they lose their fertility because that's what menopause is all about. Mm. It's loss of of capability to reproduce. That it's not just that you lose your ability to reproduce, but you lose that metabolic spark. Your Mm. metabolism changes. Your metabolic health status changes and Mm. evolves once you lose normal ovarian function. So it's it's just a part and parcel of everything that I do as a woman's healthcare expert at every every decade of life that women will go through.
1: Yeah. And you know, metabolic dysfunction, can you explain this for us? Like what is it exactly and what causes it?
0: Sure. So you need to know what the heck is metabolism. (laughs) So metabolism is the creation, utilization, storage, distribution of energy. So it turns out that it's critically important for every living creature Mm. to have a very carefully and very precisely regulated metabolism, which would include that energy intake, which is food, eating, that it matches the metabolic needs and output like energy utilization of the entire body of that living creature whatever it is mm. and that is essential for overall health so like you started off when we talked to, in the very beginning when you introduced this whole program about the large waistline mm. and how that is an, uh, an indicative of metabolic dysfunction yeah well someone who has a large waistline and they have ex- excessive visceral fat that accumulates around the midline part of the body and the belly fat mm. that those individuals have clearly a mismatch in terms of energy intake and energy utilization now it can be because they're overeating mm. it can also be because their metabolic functioning is being damaged by things like endocrine disruptors and so on mm-hmm. or you know chronically high stress hormonal deficiencies So, you know, it's a multi pronged thing, you know, it's it's but what you take in, but it's also about what you expend and how you utilize the energy that you take in. So it turns out that understanding that when people have obesity Mm. or if they have anorexia, though that's obviously less common, that what you have is a mismatch between intake and utilization of energy. And that is very finely tuned through nutrient sensors that are in the hypothalamus area of the brain Mm -hmm. that puts out the little triggering factors that then trigger the pituitary gland to put out its stimulating hormones to the ovaries called gonadotropins, LH, luteinizing hormone, and FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. So reproduction is completely interlinked with nutrient status. Mm -hmm. That's why. If you're over nutritionalized, you know, and you're obese, yes. you're going to have fertility problems. And as well, if you're very emaciated, if you're anorexic, mm-hmm. you also have fertility problems. So we need to recognize metabolism is then affecting every organ system of the body in terms of how it. Creating energy like through the mitochondria, you know, yeah. the energy producing organelles of every single cell, mm-hmm. and then how that impacts on the function of that particular organ. So, if you don't have proper creation of energy because you have some problem with your mitochondria, mm-hmm. then that organ that carries that energy producing mitochondria is going to have issues with basic functions of that organ.
2: Mm-hmm. In the
0: brain, it can manifest with emotional problems, cognitive problems. In the heart, it can lead to conduction problems, arrhythmias, heart failure, and in, of course, the kidney. Then you can have kidney failure. So every single organ needs to have proper regulated energy production for its you know, functionality and, and proper function. So this is all what goes into this global term of metabolism.
1: Yeah, it's, it's so big, isn't it? It's like throwing a stone into a pond and the ripple effect, you know, affects every system in the body. But for all the clinicians out there listening to this, you know, what are the clinical signs of metabolic dysfunction? What should we be looking out for when we have a patient sitting in front of us?
0: The first thing is what you started out with when you have an abnormal body composition. Mm-hmm. So in my office, we are, have the luxury of having a body composition machine. But if you don't have that, you know, you can do old-fashioned things like getting little calibers. You can get out your tape measure, you know, all of those things. Look at waist, you know, to um, hip measurements and so on. Because it's not just being on the scale. Mm. It's like, well, where is the weight distributed? And then if you can get a body composition and you look and see how much lean body mass you have, do you have adequate muscle? Because muscle is probably one of the least recognized and appreciated organ systems. That's very heavily linked to metabolic health, mm-hmm. or lack thereof. If you have, if you don't have enough muscle, which we call sarcopenia, which happens with aging, mm-hmm. also with very sedentary lifestyle, muscle is the biggest utilizer of glucose in the body and mm-hmm. burning okay. burning um, glucose for energy. So you've got to have proper amounts of muscle. So if you if you have someone that is getting older, mm-hmm. and then you see just by looking at them, that they are frail. They have very small amounts of muscle. Mm. If you do a bone density, they do not have adequate amounts of bone. They're not going to have much proper metabolic health because many organs like muscle, I already mentioned, but also bone. Mm. Bone is heavily linked to metabolism. Bone makes hormones. People don't even realize it's an endocrine organ that actually have a lot to do with regulation, of glucose utilization, Mm. which of course is a very key part of metabolic health. So you want to look at cognition and mood. People who have brain fog, Mm. that's a sign of metabolic dysfunction. If they're chronically fatigued and they just are dragging, that's a sign of metabolic dysfunction. Mm -hmm. If they're having a lot of gut problems, they're probably not digesting and getting the nutrients in that they need. So that's going to be a very high suspicion for having metabolic problems. Mm. So there's so many of the signs and symptoms of just not being well are really related to metabolism. Because once you like recognize metabolism is about making energy, you know, <laughs> yeah. so then you're not going to have proper organ function if any organ is not having proper energy production. Same thing with the heart. If somebody is having cardiovascular disease, that's a sign of metabolic dysfunction. And of course, if they have lab testing that shows that they're pre-diabetic, you know, that's pretty darn obvious, right?
1: So let's dive into the lab testing because this does fascinate me. There's always so many tests that we can order or run, but which are sort of your top three for assessing metabolic dysfunction? What what would be your cherry-picked ones?
0: So I would look at inflammation markers. Mm -hmm. I would look at comprehensive lipid markers. Yeah, and thyroid, a comprehensive thyroid panel,
2: Yeah, if
0: okay. I were going to just choose like three general types of panels. And this is like such a key thing. In women, it must be recognized in reproductive aged women that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign of health for a woman. Mm, so okay. a woman who has an abnormal menstrual cycle, like it's very irregular, it's too heavy, she has a lot of pain, she has PMS, pretty much any menstrual cycle dysfunction that's a sign of metabolic dysfunction. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so that we definitely want to think about those things, but the thyroid, the lipids, and the inflammation markers would be my top 3 array of lab testing.
1: Okay. And for inflammation, do you mean a high-sensitive CRP or is there another one that you would pick?
0: Yes. Yeah. But well, that included under inflammation markers would be also if if you have accessible to you um, some of the enzymes like um, LPPLA2, which is the symbols for lipoprotein lipase. So when you have inflammation in your artery walls, which is a very high sign of metabolic dysfunction, Mm. you will have an elevation of certain enzymes that are released by white blood cells because you have unstable or inflamed plaque in the wall of the artery. So There are these enzyme markers. Another one is MPO, myeloperoxidase. Also, homocysteine is actually an inflammation marker. So, can ferritin be? High ferritin is another inflammation marker. Great. But also, of course, we need to get like a basic thing like a blood count. And we should look for like what, what the white count is looking like and a chemistry panel because if you have elevated liver enzymes, which is not an early sign of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But once you have elevated liver enzymes, assuming that you don't have something else going on, like acute hepatitis or something, you know, like from viral hepatitis, but something else that, assuming you don't have that kind of thing going on, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is not easily diagnosed. Mm. Um, uh, An ultrasound of the liver will show it. But if you, by the time you have liver enzymes, you really have significant liver disease, That is a very huge problem for metabolism. And it's very common in women who have fertility problems like polycystic ovary syndrome and women after menopause, Mm -hmm. obese people, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is at epidemic levels and it's the number one cause of chronic liver failure and liver transplants in the United States
1: now. No, that is a fascinating um, point there. So we're looking at inflammation markers, our lipids and our thyroid panel, and for cycling women, always check in on their menstrual cycle and see what's going on there. But Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to delve into metabolic flexibility, which is the ability to switch between burning glucose or burning fat, which happens in the mitochondria, which you mentioned before, so how does mitochondrial dysfunction affect metabolic flexibility?
0: Well, it should just happen without even a, missing a beat. Okay. That this is how the body is supposed to work, that uh, the number one preferred energy source for the body is glucose. Mm. But we do not have glucose coming in. We're not supposed to be eating all the time. And if you go back into ancient, the ancient societies and so on, ancient humans, They would go through cycles of feast and famine. They could go days even without food coming in or very marginal amounts of food. Mm -hmm. So you need to have a backup system. And that's what fat is. So fat was designed to be stored on our bodies. Mm -hmm. And women, by the way, are way more efficient than men at creating and storing fat. That's why, (laughs) ladies, it's harder to lose weight. Nature made it that way because Mm -hmm. we're the ones that should be you know, getting pregnant and having babies and nursing. So it's more critical for women to have more storage fat. So it's not our fault that it's ours <laughs> to lose weight. But definitely we should be able to easily switch, you know, when we're not eating food, because most food can be turned into glucose, except fat. So proteins can turn into glucose. Of course, carbs can turn into glucose. And that's what people tend to eat. And then we have storage forms of glucose that's called glycogen. Mm-hmm. And it's stored in the liver, it's stored in, in muscle tissue, but it only lasts us for just so long. And one, and if you are doing a lot of heavy exercise, you're going to go through your glycogen stores even faster. Yeah. So, But once you're not eating, because humans did not have food all the time mm. in ancient civilizations and ancient times, and you've used up all your storage form of glucose in the form of glycogen, what are you going to do to survive? Are mm. well, you going to start burning fat? And that should be seamless to convert from using glucose to the backup system, okay. which is burning fat. So you shouldn't even feel the difference. You shouldn't like go through starvation. I'm going to die. I'm so hungry. <laughs> but that's what's happening to people now Yeah, because they have just poor functioning of their mitochondria. And it's not even all that well understood, whether it's like the... um the carnitine transport system that gets the long chain fatty acids into the mitochondria Mm -hmm. or it's the fact that the electron transport chain isn't working well, endocrine disruptors Mm -hmm. that interfere with normal estrogen because estrogen has functions all throughout the mitochondria and we live in a world of ubiquitous endocrine disruptors, these chemicals that interfere with our normal hormone signaling systems, nutrient deficiencies, like you need manganese for the function mm. of manganese superoxide dismutase, you know, which helps to detoxify one of the metabolic byproducts of creating energy in mitochondria, which is called superoxide. Mm. If you don't have manganese on board, then you're going to end up poisoning your mitochondria and they'll die. You know, so, you know, you need to have the the proper nutrients to run the machinery of the mitochondria as well. Yeah. So for a host of these different reasons, people don't transition seamlessly and readily and appropriately from burning glucose, which is simple. Yeah. That's like, you know, easy, except if you can't transport the glucose in, that's another problem. that's what, what insulin resistance is about. Yeah. And then you really can't seem to utilize your your fats, then what happens is you have truly energy deficient cells. They're starving. Without yeah. energy, they die. So and that happens in the brain. Okay. So the brain can seamlessly go back and forth between glucose and fat. That's critical for brain health. Mm. And when you can't do that, you can't do that properly, then your brain is energy deficient and it puts out signals like eat, 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 you know like yes. go do anything you have to do, just get food into you. That's when people get hypoglycemic. There's no glucose coming in. They can't burn the fat. And they feel like they're literally going to die. Mm. They feel like they're starving to death because their brains are so energy deficient at that moment. Mm. And they will go crazy. When I've tried to do fasting regimens with people Mm -hmm. and they don't have that metabolic flexibility, they go through this point when they run out of all their glycogen stores and they should be seamlessly burning fat, but they're not doing it well because their mitochondria are not doing their job. Yeah, they will go crazy. And what I find is that they will immediately break the fast. So they ruin all the the benefits that we were going to get out of doing like a little fasting. And they start eating the fallback, which I don't know why this is, but I've seen it over and over again. They start eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, maybe because they just have some in their pantry. I don't know. So now before I would ever do any kind of fasting regimen with people when they have to burn fat because mm. they're not getting any other you know, glucose food source i make sure that we work on their metabolic flexibility the way that you do that is just work on fitness and get nutrients into them and you know work on lifestyle yeah. for several weeks before you start you know trying to do fasting regimens with people you know yeah. that's like the shortcut to failure discouraging, you know, everybody so that they never feel like they want to do anything with you again. So, yeah, it can you know, be brutal. I learned that the hard way. Mm. Yeah. When you mm. see it, when you see that metabolic in, you know, inflexibility and they can't convert to burning fat, it is very dramatic. Mm. So, so everybody should keep that in mind. No mm. fasting until you're, you know, you've conquered this metabolic problem with and get metabolic flexibility on board.
1: Yeah, and looking at that, you know, food as medicine approach, which I always love to bring into uh, my conversations, I know that you have experience using the Ma diet, which was designed by Mario Pianessi, and it consists mainly of whole grains, vegetables, legumes, and some fish and, you know, seasonal fruits and nuts and seeds and some fermented products. And I read a study on this, on the Ma diet and diabetes, and it showed that after six months... The subjects had an improved HbA1c and had reduced their body weight. Can you share with us your clinical experience of using this diet?
0: Oh, I've had great luck. When it first came out, I don't think anyone had a good, clear idea of like, why does it even work? You know? <laughs> but now we understand that fiber foods, and these are like high complex in the, in the, the old-fashioned sense of complex carbohydrates which means they're not in any way processed. So we're talking you know beans and lentils and things like the ancient grains mm-hmm. like buckwheat and amaranth and quinoa millet you know things that have not been in any way processed root vegetables and so on. So it's a very very high starchy type of carbohydrate diet but these are foods that include resistant starch so they mm-hmm. don't actually break down into sugar. They are pure food for the gut microbiome as well as creating some degree of energy source, but they're really hard to break down. They do not turn rapidly into blood sugar. So we're not talking about pulverized grains of any sort. Yeah. These are in the, the whole form of, of root vegetables and grains and so on. And this is nutrients for our microbial population. Because we didn't even know about the gut microbiome until you know relatively recently in terms of its critical importance as you know, symbiosis kind of relationship that we nurture them, they nurture us back. Yeah. And without them, we're we're actually dead in the water. We cannot survive and we cannot be healthy if we don't have a healthy complex of microbials in our gut. Mm. It's the most complex ecosystem ever, ever, ever discovered. And you know, like trillions and trillions of bacteria of different types, and these are living creatures. They need nutrients to survive. They need to get the right diet. So we're eating for them. That's what this type of, you know, microbe nourishing diet is really all about. Now, what I've learned and the research has come out of Stanford is that you need to include Mm -hmm. is fermented foods, the, Mm. the probiotic foods and the prebiotic foods. So that's really what the fiber products are is the, you know, prebiotics, and then the probiotic foods, which are fermented foods. So it's all about nurturing not just our own nutrient needs, but our microbial nutrient needs. That's the beauty of this diet. Yes. Which you will not get, for example, on a ketogenic diet. You mm-hmm. know, a high fat diet will help people lose weight in the short run. And the reason people often feel good on it is because they're basically starving out their bad bacteria. Remember, bacteria don't live on fat. Mm. That's not their food source. They need fiber. Mm. So I think, basically, I, it's yeah. like starving the, the bad guys out, but you're also starving the good guys out. You're not going to create a healthy microbial population that way. You're just killing bad guys. That's why fasting does that too. Sometimes the best people feel is that they stop eating altogether, but that's not a long-term solution. <laughs> that's the no. problem. You can't just stop eating and starve all your bad bacteria out. You've got to also nourish and you know, support the
1: good bacteria. Yeah, that's right. And and for those people listening, if you want to look further into the MAPI diet, it's a high-fibre diet. It's around 27 grams of fibre per 1,000 calories. So it is nice and high in those forms of fibre and the different forms of fibre as well. Talking about the microbiome and the impact on weight, a paper that I read was super interesting. They gave a bifidobacteria strain of bacteria along with a fibre for six months and the overall result was a drop in abdominal fat and waist circumference, plus a decrease in their calorie intake, their zonulin, and their CRP levels. So, how does the microbiome impact glucose metabolism? What's the mechanism well, first of there? All, that
0: that study is so wonderful. It sort of correlates with the findings of the the group out of Stanford, mm. where they said that instead of giving a supplement of a probiotic, they, they gave them fermented foods along with the fiber food. So it's You know, more and more data is supporting that approach. And it is very fascinating because you could take the same food, we'll just say an identical apple, and give the same apple to three different people at the same time of day, and everything else has been stable and identical for everybody. They all have different blood sugar levels. Mm. So it's how the bacteria in the gut digest or break down that apple to create a utilization ability of the food that's in the apple in terms of then creating blood sugar that crosses out into the bloodstream. Mm. So mm. it turns out that microbes they're, they're doing so many complex things because when you have the right microbial population you actually produce the right metabolic byproducts which are called short chain fatty acids. Yes. Like one of them is called butyrate and butyrate actually binds to the vagus nerve, and it alters how the autonomic nervous system works, which means it alters as well, not just feeling happy or calm, but also how the peristalsis of the gut works, Mm. you know, so it's the enteric nervous system. In addition, the microbes themselves make neurotransmitters. Mm. So it's like, you know, like dopamine and serotonin, which affects also peristalsis, mood, and also how food is digested and so how the food is broken down to actually release you know the, the simple you know breakdown products from from the different foods that are eaten. And so when you have certain types of bacteria mm-hmm. and they've looked at like firmicutes, firmicutes and different things, that you'll actually end up having higher caloric intake from the same foods and higher blood sugar level if you have the wrong microbial population. So there's something protective about the right bacteria that you don't have an overwhelming release of blood sugar into yeah. your system that will spike then your insulin levels, and, and which is very harmful. And having high blood sugar spikes is very harmful. You don't want to have these ups and downs. You want to have a more of a stable release. So the microbes actually have a big role in how food is broken down and the speed at which sugar is released into the system. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's so critical that we get that microbial population as healthy as possible. So you can see the obstacles that people face mm. when they're trying to lose weight and get metabolically healthy. It's a big challenge for some people. It's unfortunate, but some foods need to be avoided for a while. That's the beauty of getting like continuous glucose monitors because mm. you can then individualize Um, Well, how does eating this food actually affect your blood sugar? Not somebody else's, but yours. Mm -hmm. And then you work on improving your gut microbial population and maybe... For three months, you just avoid eating that food altogether, Mm -hmm. you know, until you get your microbes in a better state of affairs.
1: Yeah, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of the microbiome. But I want to talk about another area that you do have extensive experience, which is time-restricted eating and weight management. And as clinicians, it can be so overwhelming to know what style of fasting is best. I was reading a paper that was published in February this year, and it compared early time-restricted, eating to middle of the day, time-restricted eating, and the outcomes were clear, I mean, this is one study that I looked at, uh, that eating your calories in the earlier part of the day produced better insulin sensitivity and fasting glucose and reduced inflammation and improved gut microbial diversity. But everybody's different. But can you just talk us through, as clinicians, we've got someone sitting in front of us, how do we work out what the best style of fasting is for that person?
0: Well, There has been some very interesting studies and they all really come back to the fact that we are circadian creatures. Mm. So the earth has these really interesting movements. There's seasonal movements and other things, but the the big one that has the most research is the circadian 24-hour rotation of earth on its axis. Mm -hmm. And so every living creature, which includes humans, have evolved for optimal survival, and that means for optimal food accessibility and safety. So humans, like many creatures on the planet, are diurnal. That means we're metabolically most active and we're awake and we're doing things physically in the daytime. Mm. And this is not like a choice. It's not like you could wake up one day and say, hmm, I just would like to be like an owl and you know, become nocturnal. Mm-hmm. No, you, this is actually programmed into our genes. And one third of all the genes in the human body are called clock genes. Mm-hmm. And 90% of all genes in the body, whether they're clock genes or not, they're associated with clock genes. So basically everything in our body is on a timer and you can actually get a clock face. You can find them online where it shows like this time of day, you're Immune system is doing this, like your natural killer cells peak in the morning. Mm. Male testosterone peaks at ten a.m., and you know, and you have your temperature and your blood pressure and everything is on a timer. Mm. And these are not changeable. And it turns out that we are most insulin sensitive in the first part of the day, so that when we eat food in the the morning time, we get more function out of our insulin. So for the same amount of insulin, we will lower blood sugar much more effectively. So, blood sugar incursions will be lower, insulin levels will be lower, which is very good, okay. you know, because we don't want those big giant spikes. So, eating in the morning is all about eating with our circadian rhythms. There was a fabulous study out of Israel with women with polycystic ovary syndrome who have major metabolic dysfunction, mm. and 80% are obese. And what they found was in just one month where they had them eat two-thirds of all their food intakes in the morning, and then they had one-third for either late lunch or early dinner, in just one month, their insulin levels dropped by just over 50% and their testosterone level, they have high testosterone, dropped 50%. And they started ovulating. It's amazing. So it's so critical to know that we are time creatures. Also, our GI tracts work better in the morning, we're going to have better peristalsis, we're going to have better digestion when we eat in the morning. And a lot of people figure this out at some point in life when they eat late (laughs) at night, they have more indigestion, more heartburn. That's not like a chance happening. Mm. It's because we are programmed that way. There's a whole system in the body called the endocannabinoid system, Mm. which is a lipid signaling system. And that is incredibly circadian. And that will affect mood and weight control and so many things that are so critical with our immune system. And so we need to accept we are who we are. We are day creatures. We're diurnal. We will do much better as a group if we eat early in the day. Now we're all gonna go to parties. We're gonna go to weddings and sometimes Mm. things are late at night. But as much as humanly possible, try to do the old fashioned you know, big breakfast, medium lunch, and early small dinner. Or if you can't do like the big breakfast, then try to do the big lunch. I mean, there are cultures all over the world that make lunch their biggest meal. But the worst thing that we can do is have a giant late dinner,
1: you Mm, know? Great. And trying to have that
0: that, a 13-hour or more um, from dinner to breakfast.
1: Yes. Okay, so the eating window is pushed earlier in the day and we want at least a 13-hour Where we are not eating overnight, so I think that's a great baseline. Yes, a fantastic baseline for clinicians to start with, and just getting patients to tune into how they feel when they're eating in that natural rhythm that suits their body as a human being. (laughs) So, I wanted to move to perimenopause, and I know it does affect glucose management. Why do you think that is, and and what as clinicians, what can we do to help women? in this phase with their glucose resistance and insulin resistance?
0: Well, reproduction and metabolic health are all completely intertwined. And estrogen, in the form of estradiol, that's the, the form that the ovaries mm. make during reproductive years, is like the glue that links reproductive health and metabolic health. And a criti- a critical part of metabolic health is transporting sugar into cells. And that does not work well in an absence of adequate estrogen production, Mm. which of course is inevitable during the perimenopause as estrogen levels start to decline, become very inconsistent. And then of course, menopause when the ovaries cease to make ultimately any estrogen at all. So the glucose transporters called the glutes do not work properly without without estrogen Mm. as well. The mitochondria don't work properly without estrogen. Okay. So, you know, you have these problems in terms of transporting glucose into cells and then utilizing it, it properly. And also what happens after menopause, this has been shown, yeah. is that you have an alteration of the gut microbiome, which we've just mm. been talking about how critically important it is. So after the onset of menopause, the composition of the gut microbiome becomes what we call dysbiotic or abnormal. And women then develop what's called impaired gut barrier function or leaky gut Mm -hmm. because the proper microbes create this mucus protective coating, which goes away. And then you have the wrong microbes. They make what are called endotoxins, also known as LPS, lipopolysaccharides, which can cross into the body, creating activation of immune cells, which Mm -hmm. creates a systemic level of low-level inflammation. So after menopause, women become sort of low-level, chronically inflamed. They have leaky gut. And the immune cells, which are also estrogen-controlled in large Mm. measure, have a lower threshold to creating inflammation. So you just have more and more triggers to inflammation. Mm. Inflammation promotes more insulin resistance. So now you have like insult to injury, right? Mm. So you have trouble transporting. You have more insulin, you have more inflammation. So that's the ticket to developing obesity too, because insulin, which is essential for life, if you don't have enough insulin, like type one diabetics in the old days before they had insulin, people died. But insulin among its many critical functions, but it's the promoter for the production and storage of fat. Yes. Well, uh uh-oh, that's what women do very well. It's a totally different skill set to burn fat and to create fat and mm-hmm. store fat. So women lose the really the best ability to burn fat, to create energy, but still totally great at storing and making fat. And that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have enough estrogen and you have that state of inflammation, yeah. the body goes into the default state, which is producing visceral and belly fat.
1: Mm, goodness me, it's it's such a vicious cycle, isn't it, for women? I mean, it's just one thing leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. I know clinically we see women all the time that are so frustrated uh, about this situation. <laughs> so I think, you know, if we can get some uh, strategies on board for helping these women, yes, such as, for- <laughs> yeah, try, you know. Yeah, I was
0: going to say, it otherwise comes across as all doom and gloom. I don't want it to <just laughs> sound like that, you know, like we're all doomed. Because there are amazing things that we can do. One is actually eating phytoestrogen foods Mm, after menopause and perimenopause. And there are many phytoestrogen foods that people don't even realize. So phytoestrogen foods are foods that contain these polyphenols.
2: Mm.
0: Like people are familiar with soy, but not just soy, other legumes and beans and grains. They can have what are called isoflavones. Mm. So that's a specific type of nutrients that actually bind to estrogen receptors. They're not estrogen. Okay, Mm. so don't, don't, people shouldn't think that they're eating estrogen. They're not (laughs) eating estrogen. They're eating plants that have these polyphenols that can bind to estrogen receptors. And then there are also, you know, things like flaxseed. Like Mm. they're, they're a different type of, of polyphenol that are phytoestrogens. They're called lignans. But then there are others like that come in different fruits and vegetables, like the grapes, the red grapes that have resveratrol. That's actually a phytoestrogen. Yes. And pomegranates that have ellagic acid that makes urolithin A, that's actually also a, a phytoestrogen. Mm. So eating a very expansive plant-based diet Will have tremendous benefits for the gut because they can bind to the receptors in the gut and actually improve the gut health, the gut microbiome. So they don't underestimate the power of food. Yeah. But in addition, you know, we can work with our circadian rhythm to get it better because estrogen helps to regulate the circadian rhythm, which when you don't have the estrogen with the onset of menopause, you essentially as a female become like jet lagged. Mm -hmm. which is like not a good healthy state to be in. So you're always in sort of a jet lag state. Different organs are not perfectly synchronized in the same time zone. So like what happens when your liver and your pancreas are in different time zones, it's not a good site. But the way that we can help keep things in proper alignment and having organs work in the same time zone is by getting bright light in the morning. Mm. So we're working with the the master clock in the brain that sits atop the optic nerve and can sense light and dark and also nutrient sensors. So we want to get bright light in the morning, some bright light in the midday, and then we want to get to see the sunset. It's amazing. The the Mm. colors of the sunset will help lower cortisol and start our melatonin to start being produced. And at night when you're sleeping, make the room dark, really dark. Yes. It makes the room really nice and cool because we want our temperature to drop. Yeah. And uh, so we want to definitely do all these things that we can. And then time eating that we already touched on, you know, by trying to eat the same times every day, trying not to snack because that only confuses our gut microbes. Mm-hmm. And like every living creature on this planet also have clock genes and you can help them to get the gut to be healthier and not have leaky gut and all that problem with, you know, endotoxins leaking out and everything. Yeah. By getting them to get regimented, like train them, you know, yeah. eating your food at the same time every day, they'll work better. Because microbes need consistency of time, too. Yeah. Like our little pets, you know, you want to feed them at the same time. Think of these as our trillions of little pets inside our gut that need to be fed on a regular timed basis. And exercise. Exercise has so many health benefits. It's amazing what exercise Mm, can do for women. And um, if you want to lose weight, it's best to exercise in the morning. If you want to build muscle, it's best to exercise in the afternoon. So those are things to keep in mind. And then working on stress, of course. Women after menopause tend to have more cortisol, more stress. So doing some kind of mind-body practice. So lifestyle can have these choices of what you eat, when you eat your mood, your light exposure, your sleep and sleep quality um, can have tremendous health benefits Mm. and and just change the dynamic of menopause. So you know, don't underestimate the value of lifestyle. I'm a big hormone fan, but hormones are never going to be the same like you're 25. We don't have the ability to give you back ovaries. So no matter whether you're on hormones or not on hormones, You still need to do all the lifestyle stuff, which you should do at every stage of life because you could be 25 and be metabolically unhealthy. You know, that's for sure. And that's happened a lot. That's why they have fertility problems and obesity in younger women. Mm. So there's no time of life that you get a free ride that you can just do whatever the heck you want, not worry about lifestyle. But especially when you hit menopause, there's very... Very little forgiveness at that stage.
1: Yeah. you got to do it right. I think menopause just puts everything under a microscope that may have been bubbling away a little bit, but then it's just highlighted at that time. But I am so thankful for you taking the time today and sharing with us, you know, your expertise. Some key points I've taken from today is definitely the critical importance of a diverse gut microbiome and that an eating window earlier in the day with at least a 13-hour fasting period and the importance of food as medicine is critical. Never forget that, how powerful it can be and I love the sound of the study that you just mentioned. Uh, Thank you so much for listening today, everyone. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, Transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website, fxmedicine.com.au. I'm Emma Sutherland, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.